Thanks, Allie. I'm Luke. I usually serve at front door welcoming people, and my wife, Lauren, she serves with the kiddos. So good to be here. Uh, if you'd follow with us on page 147 in the Blue Bibles, you can also take those home if you don't have one at home. Second uh, Samuel 5, 1 through 10. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed King or David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good job, Luke. Thank you. How are we doing? Good. Well, I'm excited to preach this, even though it's, uh, I actually have to teach just so you know, chapter one through chapter five. So buckle up. Uh, also, I'm recovering from hernia surgery. So if I have some weird facial expressions, it's not gas. It's the pain in my midsection. So uh, pray for me. I'm not on any Percocet. Luckily, uh, it's going to be like the Michael Jordan flu game. This is going to be a day to remember. I was there when that average preacher preached like he normally does after his surgery. Welcome to Redemption North Mountain. Um, so I love my kids for a lot of reasons. One of them is this. They are the greatest with movie quotes. Like I've said this before, but they can just pick a movie quote that fits any situation and they zing it in. Ozzy, who's four, has already started to do that. And The Chosen is the show I've been talking about a lot. We watch it a ton and now they're taking chosen lines and throwing them right in the particular spot that a line or a quote would fit perfectly. And this scene we're about to watch here is one of the lines that my oldest son uses from time to time when we're talking about the goofiness of what Christianity is. Just how absurd it is what we've decided to follow in following an invisible God in a world that only sees and follows what they can touch and feel and experience. What we've done here as the church, as individual Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're following something that does not make sense the second we walk out here and try to explain it to a watching world. And this clip here is the beginning of one of the episodes. It's actually Jacob, Old Testament Jacob. So Jacob the liar, the deceiver, his name became Israel. It's him when he's moving to a new land because God told him to move to start a well. And it just encapsulates what it is to try to follow God more perfect than anything I've ever seen on a show. So watch Jacob here. This is the spot, my sons. Shalom, my friend. I, I don't know that word. 
It's something my family says. It's a greeting of peace. You won't find much of that here, I'm afraid. I'm Jacob. I'm Yassib. Yassib, I would offer you something to drink, but as you can see, we have just begun work on our well. You bought this land from the sons of him. For only 100 kesida, can you believe it? <laughs> I believe it every time the princes of this land cheat another foreigner. You will cost the day you pay that 100 kesita. And what do you think would have been a fair price? Zero kesita, zero goats, zero... I have 12 sons to work the land, and once we strike water... You will never strike water. Yes, the recent rain makes the land look lush, but the underground river runs around the mountain, not up it. Our God takes care of us. This is Canaan. The gods are not nice here. <laughs> we won't be here that long. We are sojourners. Ah, and what are you looking for? A land our God promised my grandfather, Abraham. Your grandfather? You ever notice how the gods are always promising us things, but we never really see them happen? Sometimes it takes generations. Ah, <laughs> suit yourself. So, what is this uh, god of yours called, anyway? El Shaddai. I've never heard of him. Not many people have, but I think someday they will. You have no home? Where's your temple for this god? He has no temple. So where do you worship him? Build altars wherever we go. And you do not carry him with you? <laughs> no. There are no carved idols of him. So he's invisible? Yes. Well, usually. There was... One time, he broke my hip. Oh, no, 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 I've heard enough. Of all the gods you could possibly choose from, you pick an invisible god whose promises take generations to come true, who, who makes you sojourn in strange places, and he broke your hip. That is a strange choice. Oh, immigrants. We didn't choose him. Father! Such a good show. If you have not watched it, I am going to keep talking about it until everyone here watches it. That's the line Elijah drops whenever we're talking about faith, and it's like, this is crazy what God has called us to. Of all the gods you could possibly choose from, you picked an invisible God, knock number one, whose promises take generations to come true. He makes you sojourn in strange places, and on top of that, he broke your hip. This is the God you chose. We didn't choose him. He chose us. Welcome to Christian faith. If you are here because someone invited you to figure out what faith is, we are called to follow an invisible God whose promises take generations to come true, who walks with us still invisibly, and sometimes he breaks your hip. And that's the God we're called to follow. And how does that fit with the story we're at with the story of King David? King David is not an asterisk to that story of faith. King David had to walk and wait and had to be broken before God was to use him in mighty ways. And that's what we walk in in this story. Like I said, 2 Samuel chapter 1 all the way through chapter 5. This is where David finally gets to take the crown that was promised to him and place it on his head. He was probably a 12-year-old boy when the promise came from the mouth of God, you are the king, you are the anointed one. 
30 years old is when he gets to place the crown on his head in a place that's not quite his home. 37 years old is when he gets to sit with his crown on the seat in Jerusalem where God had called him. Why? Because we follow an invisible God who takes a long time to come through on his promises. So that's the question to sort of shape our time together. Here's my question. How do we follow the Lord when he seems to go so slow? Like some of you are right now in a chapter you wish God would turn and move on. Some of you, this is just how life works, don't know it, but you're walking into a chapter that's going to last far longer than you want it to last. Some of you are walking family members and friends through the slowness of life. And what makes Christianity unique is not that life is hard. It's that life is hard and we're called to trust and obey a God who is in control of all of it, including the calendar and the timeline for how it all plays out. And he's slower than most of us would want him to be. So as we walk through this story, like I said, five chapters, I'm not going to pick every word and dice up everything, but I, just, I see four truths in here that we need to remember if we want to follow Jesus. If we want to get through a slow season on the tail end of that, have a deeper, more robust, more thick faith in Jesus Christ than when we started. Here's four truths to remember. That's what we're going to walk through this morning. It's four truths to help us trust God even and especially when he's going very slow. So let's, uh, let's just pause for a second and let God prepare our hearts. Let's pray together. God, you are the God who makes promises that takes generations to come true. You made a promise in the garden that one day the seed of Eve would crush he who caused that problem in the garden. And now we sit here many, many, many years later still watching your plan unfold, having a much clearer picture because of the person of Jesus, but we still sit in seasons where we're called to wait and to follow and to trust. Not just when things are going well, but especially when things are slower than we'd like. So God, help us to hear from you, specifically in the situations and the places and the relationships and the callings you've put us in. Help us to grow our faith this morning. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Everyone said, amen. So four truths to remember to help us follow a God who goes way slower than we want. Here's the first truth, is he speaks faster than he writes. That may sound heretical, but God speaks faster than he writes. It's not like a speech impediment. When I was young, I had a speech impediment. I had a speech therapist come. My brain worked at a certain speed. My mouth, they weren't synced up. What I'm saying is God speaks stuff, and then later on down the road, he writes it into the story to happen. His words of promise always precede them actually coming true, which leaves this gap, which none of us really like. It's where faith kicks in. And in the life of David, here's what I want to do, is just walk through these couple of chapters and see it played out in the life of David. What did he promise to David? You will be king. How old was David? 12 years old. When David sits down in Jerusalem as the king, Jerusalem means city of peace. This is where God is going to rule and reign with a human king. From the line of Judah, he sits down. He's 37 years old, 12 to 37, 25 years later-ish. That's a long time. Some of you are waiting on stuff that's not going to take 25 years. David waited a long time. Why? Because God speaks faster than he writes. So just to get us caught up, flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 31. Again, we're not covering every word, every sentence, every paragraph in these books. We're trying to give you the main characters. David Saul 
and Solomon. And I just want to let you know how Saul's doing. Uh, he's not good. He's dead. So let's go just see what happened. 1 Samuel chapter 31, we're going to read the first seven verses. So this is the end of the king Saul, not God's king, the people's king. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on the Mount Geboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadad and Malchi Shua, the sons of Saul. Now the battle pressed hard against Saul. Now the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. So he's been struck by some arrows. Verse 4, Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust through and mistreat me. I don't want to be tortured. I don't want to be killed by these people who I despise. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Where Saul, he's dead. He committed suicide on the battlefield rather than die the death of the Philistines. Well, that's a loud scream. Um, Saul is dead. Here's what we should see. Flip the page and David should go march to the city and sit on the throne and get to work as the king. That's not what happened. Flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Again, we're not going to read, but I'll just give you a summary of chapter 1. David laments and grieves and mourns for Saul, the one who wanted nothing more than to kill David. David spends time mourning and having a service for Saul, the king. Saul is now dead. David's the one. There's a leadership vacuum there. He's the obvious one. Rather than speed to it, he mourns. And then what happens? David becomes king, kind of, once again. Just a reminder, in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel says there's going to be a king. Go to Jesse and bring his sons through. And Jesse brings his sons through. And they're all tall and good looking. And he's like, Samuel's like, I think that's the one. And God says, don't see as man sees. Holy smokes. You guys hear somebody is not doing well over there. And all the sons come through, and Samuel says, there's one more. And they bring out the baby, David, from the field, and he says, that's the king. And in 1 Samuel 16, he's anointed with oil. You are the king. How many times does he have to be anointed before it's official? What we're going to see here is there's three times David's anointed. Go to chapter 2, verse 1. Saul's dead. David is the king. Now, when he was 12 or 13, he probably didn't know fully what's happening, but at this point, he knows. I know what Samuel was doing there. I, I'm supposed to be king. Chapter 2, verse 1. Here's the second anointing of King David. And after this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up, to, in, in, go up into any of the cities of Judah? The Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives... Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David the king over the house of Judah. Pause right there. So just a bi the Bible's very confusing. It's hard to read. I get it. Just so you know, in the Old Testament, here's a little tip. When they talk about Israel and Judah, especially for like the next this much of the Bible, when they say Israel, they're talking about the north. 
Judah, they're talking about the south. Eventually, they split, and they become diffs, and the north becomes what we know as the uh, Samaritans in the New Testament. But there's a split here, and what's happening is David is in the south. His boys are there, and they anoint him king over the south. Does that mean he's king? It means he's king over Judah, the south. So the king who was promised to be king at 12 is now king of half of the land. And fast forward to what Luke read. Go to chapter 5. This is after stuff I'll cover in a second here. But here's the final anointing of David. Now all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Hey, we're boys. Verse 2. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in. And the Lord said, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Here's the details of his reigning. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and the other 33 years he reigned over all of Israel and all of Judah. Why do I unpack all that other than the fact that i'm supposed to teach all this text david was 12 years old you are the rightful king of this place it says it wasn't until he was 37 years old as he's sitting in the throne of the king in jerusalem why because we follow a god who takes a long time how many anointings did it take for david to sit down in his rightful throne three one from the lord through samuel one from his boys in judah and one from all of israel saying all right you're the guy and as I've been praying through this and just thinking, like, what does this mean for us? I mean, Old Testament, there's a lot going on. Here's, at a minimum, what I think it means. I want to be a church that does not fear failure. Like, David could have been like, I was told I was going to be king. This Saul thing's happening. I'm out. I'm anointed. A civil war breaks out. Uh, this is not what I signed up for. He keeps stepping into it. He keeps putting his neck out. Like, as Christians, God has placed stuff on our hearts. He's placed stuff on my heart. This church is a picture of something God has placed on a few of our hearts to start here in North Central Phoenix. Now, we're not going to have something placed on our heart, step out in faith, and God's going to bless it, and it's going to take off right out of the gate. Why? Because we follow an invisible God who takes generations for his promises to come true, and months and years and sometimes decades for the callings and the anointings in this room to come to fruition. A 12-year-old boy heard the voice of God saying, you're the king. A 37-year-old man sat down, finally seeing all that God had promised come true. God is slow the way we think, but he is not slow. He is right on time. Now, what is happening in this kingdom as all these anointings are happening? Just to give you, it's not good. Here's what I, I want to show you just where the civil war starts. Go to chapter 2, verse 8, and then I'm going to give us a flyover of the fun parts of this story. Chapter 2, verse 8. So David is anointed in the south with Judah. His crew says, you're the one. What's happening up north with the rest of Israel? So think Canada. What's happening in Canada right now? Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. 
Now Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And at that time, David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah. It was seven years and six months. So just to give us some characters, Abner is the cousin of Saul. Saul's dead. Abner is also the commander of Saul's army. And he now takes this guy, Ish-bosheth, who doesn't seem all that great. He doesn't really offer much. He's just taken by Abner, placed as the king in the north. Abner's like, all right, we got our kingdom now. There's another guy, Joab, who's going to rise to the scene. He's the nephew of David and the commander of his army. So we got Abner and Joab. David's king down here. Ishbosheth is king up here. And these two are going to fight, and a civil war ensues for seven years with the people of God who have God himself speaking directly to them. A civil war psh, breaks out. David was 12 years old. Hey, you're going to be king. And now he's in the middle of a civil war. How is it going? Not that good. Just to show, chapter 2, I'm not going to, but just give you the highlights. Chapter 2, verse 12, down to verse 17, there's this funny little, funny, I mean, people die. Nothing, it's not that funny. It's an interesting picture. So they send this, these groups of young men to battle at a pool. I picture like a West Side Story, like fight. It's like, Picture your best, your most thespian-like people, and they go to this pool, Joab's people and Abner's people, and they stand outside a pool, and they battle. And then they pull out their swords, and they fight, and it says, Joab's people won. David wins. All right, civil war. Is it over? Nope. And then Abner takes off running. And it's like, he's running. And then they write in the story, a guy, now Ashael, was swift of foot. He was like a wild gazelle. This guy from David's camp runs after Abner. And Abner keeps looking back, stop chasing me. And this guy's following him, stop chasing me. I'm not going to stop chasing you. And Abner takes a spear, the butt of a spear, and he stabs him and kills him. Another death in this civil war. Fast forward to chapter 3. It says there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. The war is raging on. Abner, Saul's guy, Joab, David's guy. David's the king here. Ishbosheth is the king here. What are we going to do? Abner's probably the sh most shrewd, best leader out of all these people except for David. And Abner's like, you know what? I'm not going to win this war. I need to join back forces. I need to get in line with David. So let's just read what Abner decides to do. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 2. Civil War, we're on year four of seven. Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. Hear what Abner asks? I want to join up. I'll bring everyone that's still outside of the David camp with me and we will join up and we will unite the clans. Israel will be strong once and for all. David's response, verse 13, David says, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring back Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. I had a wife given to me that in the middle of this war, she's not with me anymore. Bring her, and if you do that, we will be fine. Abner's like, great, done, deal. So Abner leaves in peace with David to unite Israel once and for all. Joab now enters the scene later on in this chapter, from battle. He has the spoils of battle. He's won. He's talking to David and he sees that. He's like, what is going on here? This, this is, 
the enemy is here. And Joab does not seek counsel from David, doesn't ask for what's really going on. Joab goes after Abner and kills him. So we say, this is how this needs, that's the biggest threat we have. He must die. How's the kingdom going, David? Not so good. A 12-year-old boy was promised to be king over the people of God. He's now in his early 30s, and there's civil war, and the guy he just made a treaty with to unite this once and for all has been murdered by his number one commander, also his nephew, so there's family situation going on there. How is it going, David? Not very good. And oh, by the way, this whole time he's not actually in Jerusalem. He's sitting on the throne in Hebron, sort of the JV option. It's like, I'm not going to go to Phoenix. I'm going to go to whatever. I'm the governor of Arizona, and my throne is in Casa Grande. That's not my first choice. How is it going? Not great. Like, we just have to let God's word speak for itself. I know we want it to be pithier and quicker and fit on mugs and be able to just be digested easily, but God's word is this slow unfolding story of an invisible God who takes generations for his promises to come true. And we are the people invited into that story. And the first king that God chooses for his people, his story is no different. 12 years old, he received the anointing. I will be king. 37 years old is when he sits down on the throne. Like you have your stories in here. Like when God placed something on your heart. I think of women who want to be moms. God place it. That's a good thing that God has placed in you. I want to be a mother. And you're in the season waiting. To hold your baby. Why? Because you follow an invisible God who takes a long time for his promises to come true. Some of you, God has placed these big dreams in your heart for businesses or what you're going to do with your life or your vocation. And you're in this season of waiting. Why? Because we follow an invisible God. He speaks faster than he writes. That's what faith is. God invites us into this delay where his voice has gone out but his pen has not gone down to finalize it in our lives yet. That's called faith. And King David, if he's really going to be a man after God's own heart, does not get to circumvent and go around that process of faith. He has to go through that. So he has to go from 12 years old to 37, year old, 37 years old, learning what it's like to trust and follow in the slowness of God's deliverance. He is slow. So we think he just speaks faster then he writes. The best visual I can give for this, it's NFL season kicking off this week, so we're going to have a splattering of guys who tend to miss. We got Dane, who's going to be watching every Jacksonville game. The only guy who has Jacksonville T-vote up, he wants to see how the Jaguars are going to do. They're not going to do great, but he's going to go home and he's going to watch. In the rare instance where you have two people watching the same game, my kid's watching the Cardinals live in a room, and I'm watching the delayed version, and I'm hearing them, the speaker, in the fourth quarter, I'm only on the first quarter. Which one is true? The voice coming out, declaring what's happening, or what I'm watching, what I'm experiencing in real time? Both. But which one should affect my faith and my anxiety and my trust more? The voice that says it's the fourth quarter. There's three seconds left. The Cardinals are up by 17. I should, because the voice has gone out, even though in the second quarter it does not look like that. That's what Christians are called to, to hear a voice that declares something true and then wait, 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 
and then you get to sit and rest in his promises as it come true far down the road. That's not why we signed up to be Christians. We signed up to be Christians because we want our sins forgiven, our life was a mess, and we wanted just a better life than what we we're currently dealing with. And he invites us, and he does all that, but then he says, oh, by the way, part of following me is you're following an invisible God who's promises take a long time to come true just look at anybody i loved and cherished and used in the bible including king david here's one way to look at the the gap of god's voice and god's writing when he why does god take so long to make stuff happen there's a thousand answers god may give he gives one explicit answer in scripture peter says this the lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness so I know he seems slow, but he's not slow. We'll talk to us. Peter, what's up? But he is patient towards you, and he does not wish that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance. What is the reason for the gap? According to Peter, Jesus' very good friend, it's in this gap that people get to know and follow and trust Jesus because of our work in their lives. Over breakfast yesterday morning, I was talking with the boys, and we put together this prayer card of kids we're praying for at school that we want to see saved. And they all had people. They're like, what's hard about being a Christian at school? I'm like the only one. Well, who are some kids that you want to know Jesus? This kid, I'm not going to say names, but you know, this kid, this kid, this kid. Why is God so slow? Why has Jesus not come back? Because he is not wishing that any should perish, but every name on that card would come to repentance. He's not slow. His voice just goes before his hand starts writing. That's the first thing we need to remember. Here's the second thing. We need to remember that he does see everyone involved in this story. Like, I've loved teaching this. I've learned, I did not study Saul a lick before this, and I come to appreciate and sort of just, I get Saul a little more. He's a complicated character, but I see myself in him in a lot of ways. He's not like vying for leadership. He gets it, and then he really doesn't do all that great with him, but I, I, I see him. And David, I'm just falling in love with just seeing how complicated, how faithful he is, but how complicated he really is. But Saul and David are not the only characters in the story. They are the main characters historically. They're the kings that are on the throne for Israel during this time. So they're key there. Theologically, they're also at the center of this is when the kingdom of God comes into the light in the Old Testament and in the Bible. But they are not the only characters. And God, sometimes when he's giving us his word, he reminds us that he's got much better vision than we do. And he sees everyone. I just want to highlight one of those characters in this story. Go to chapter 3, verse 15. How do we live in a story that's taking so long to flesh itself out? Here's one of the ways. We just remember we serve a God who sees every character. Verse 15 and 16. So this is when Abner is trying to make a deal. David's like, yeah, great, but bring me Michael. Abner says, cool. The two guys, the two most powerful guys in the story, make a deal about this woman. And then who's affected by this decision? Verse 15. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. That same husband went with her, weeping after her, all the way to Bahiram. And Abner turned to him and said, go return and he returned what a sad picture if this is a if this is a two-hour long movie this is like a 45 second clip michael gets dragged her husband's walking with her weeping he loves his wife she just so happens to be the wife of other men because of king saul king saul gave her to david 
She helps out David. Saul gets mad. He takes her away. He gives it, Saul gives him to this other man, Paltiel. Now David's in charge. He's like, David, all I want is I want that woman back. Michael comes, but she just so happens to be married to this guy, Paltiel. What a heartbreaking story. None of us can relate to that. We don't live in a world, we don't live in a country where that sort of uh, injustice happens. But people have experienced this where the people they love most have been taken from it, and we're watching it happen. As the king whom God chose is taking the throne. What are we supposed to do with that? Like just pass through it like, oh, ee, ugh. I think it's God saying like, I see it all. King David's good, but he's not great. Because when King Jesus shows up, he sees everyone. That's the biggest accusation against him is he's hanging out with everyone. He doesn't have this clique that he hangs out with. He's with the sinners and the tax collectors. And he's with the lame and he's with the blind and he's with the lepers and he's with the women and he's with the sexually tarnished women. And he's with them all the time and he's calling them friends. Why? Because God sees everyone. And King Jesus shows us what the king should have been like. And David is part of this story that all stories are like until you get Jesus on the throne. That there will be injustice and there will be these stories of paltials where they just break your heart. Until King Jesus shows up and says, hey, I see everyone. I am the rightful king. So part of waiting on God to show up is thinking like he does not see me. I mean, I just talked with a gal between services about like it's just hard when it feels like God has sort of closed his eyes to you and I 100% know that feeling and that's a very real feeling but it's not what the scripture would tell us is actually happening there's a story Jacob the guy we saw in the video he he gets tricked into marrying two women he wanted the pretty one the dad said no you you get lazy eye Leah so you got Rachel and Leah and I, I grew up with two sisters and they could fight and I can only imagine if one man had to marry my two sisters, Julie and Jessica, and at some point it was determined that one was better looking than, like, what a mess. And Leah's the one that's over here like, does anyone see me? She can't get pregnant. Rachel's over here pretty, pregnant, pretty, recovers, pregnant again. Leah's over here, does anyone see me? She gets pregnant. She has a son. She names him Reuben. Why is she named that? Because... God who sees my affliction, affliction, the God who is up there sees little old me. It's a way to say, like, God sees everyone. He sees Leah. He's not just focused on the good characters or the big characters or the fancy characters. He loves all of the characters in the story, including this poor guy who has to say goodbye to his wife and go off, and he's never heard from again. How do we wait? We just remember God sees everyone. And that might be you or it might be the people you're trying to love and care for. He sees it. He may not be responding and moving like you want him to, but he sees it. And he's good and he's gracious and he's kind towards you. Here's the third truth. How do we deal with the waiting, the slowness of God? We just got to remind, remind ourselves that he guides those who ask. Here's sort of the two main characters in this story. If we think about power at play, it's Abner, Saul's cousin, and David, the king. These are the ones, whoever wins this battle gets the kingdom, Abner or David. And, David is, and Abner is described as this great mighty warrior who takes Ishbosheth, puts him on the throne. He makes him king. It says, 
Abner made him king. What kind of man and grit and power and intellect and just prestige must you have to take another man and make him king? That's a strong man. But nowhere as you read this story does it ever say anything about Abner stopping and asking God for guidance or direction or help. It's Abner using his intellect, his wisdom, his might, his power, his fighting ability to press the ball forward in the direction he wants. However, there's another king in this story, King David. And not once but twice do we see how David responds when faced with tough situations. The first one's chapter 2. We've already read it once, but I re- want to read it again in this light. Chapter 2, verse 1. After this, after what? Saul's dead. David should have sprinted to the throne. Saul's dead. David mourns. And after this, okay, you mourn, David. Now sprint to the throne. That's not what he does. He stops and he prays. David inquired of the Lord. Abner's blowing through walls and people. David stops, inquires of the Lord. Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? The Lord said to him, go up. I'll keep my prayer going. And David said to him, to which shall I go up? Tell me the specific city. And he said, Hebron. Verse 2, so David went up there and his two wives and also Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David's faced with this intersection. There's a passage in Jeremiah 11. It says, oh man, you've come to this ancient intersection. Stop and pause and ask the Lord what the ancient way is and walk in that way. That's what prayer is. It's stopping and I'm at this intersection. And there's a way God wants this to work out, but I have to stop and ask which direction to take. And David stops and inquires of the Lord. He says, go to Hebron. And then you see it again. Go to chapter 5. David's now king. He's actually king. He's got the he's got the people he's got the united kingdom he's got it all he does not need any more help he is finally in charge there's this philistine problem what's he going to do verse 19 and david inquired of the lord shall i go up against the philistines and will you give them into my hand and the lord said to david go up for i certainly give them into your hand like maybe the seasons of waiting whatever it is for you When God called me to be a pastor, it was through a sweet lady in Texas, Julia Watts. I was 25 years old. I got my official pastor license when I was 33 years old. I I wanted it to happen like that because I could do school and I could pass. I could do all that. But God took some of you wanting kids, those of you in college, like you got big, big dreams. And God is not going to line it up exactly like you currently think it should line up, I promise you. So what are you going to do in those spaces and those seasons where there's waiting? Here's what I think David shows us. Maybe God is inviting us in those seasons to prayer. Like maybe God creates the gap when he speaks and when he acts specifically for us so that we might press into prayer. Because God knows exactly how it's going to go down. He spoke it. He's going to do it. He's the author and the perfecter of faith. He is the author of this story. He's in charge. But he's created these moments of space where we're waiting on him. And what does he want from us? Prayer. Jesus would say it like this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Just stop right there because this is where 
he does not give us an amount of knocks. He just says knocks and seeks. How many times, Lord? You tell me how many times I'm supposed to knock and I will do it. Just knock and just seek. You are not showing up. Ask, seek, knock. Now, if you're not a Christian, you come here like this is not going to make my life better. I get it. But the other option is to go blind out there thinking you are in more control than you really are or submissively come under the good leadership of King Jesus who tells us to seek and to knock. And he does not give us a time frame on when he'll open it. He just says, I will open it. And what's going to happen when he opens the door to answer our prayer request? Here's the picture he gives us. Verse 9, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, meaning you ask your parents for something, even if you have the worst parents. And I've seen some bad parents. They'll give you something potentially. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Maybe this season is strictly for you to press into prayer more so that at some point, in some way, in some situation, you're going to see the door open and your good Father in heaven is going to give you far more than you ever expected or deserved. Fourth truth is this, and we'll end here. How do we live in the slowness of God? We must remember that he is the greatest shepherd. How is David described as he takes the throne in Jerusalem finally at 37 years old? They're not talking about his being a mighty warrior, a wise king, a supreme leader, the one and only, the prince above all princes. The words used to describe David when he takes the throne, we must pay attention to 2 Samuel chapter 5 because God wants us to remember, this is the type of king I wanted. So this is the people that have now synced up with, God, with uh, David. They're going to unite. It's going to be one Israel under one king, David. And now they're describing to David why they're under him now. In times past when Saul was king over us, so that we, we lived under Saul, but it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and you shall be prince over Israel. What does Israel need most? They don't need a powerful warrior king. They need a shepherd who will lead them out and bring them back in. What do we need in this room right now? Some of us think money. That's where I'm at. It's getting a little tight. Some of us need better health. Some of us need, there's a lot of things we think we need, but primarily at the top of this, what we all need is a shepherd who leads us and guides us out and back in and does it for our good every time. And David is supposed to be a king like that. How does he do? This is where the story of David sort of gets more complicated because we're going to read stories about Bathsheba and Uriah you're supposed to be our shepherd, David. Remember that. And what's interesting is the words right around where this happens sort of give a picture of how this is going to play itself out. Starting in verse 9 of chapter 5, David's now sitting on the throne. Let's talk about David the shepherd. David lived in the stronghold, and they called it the city of David. And David built the city all around him. From Milo inward, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. It gets better. His kingdom's even more grand and glorious. Verse 11, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. 
And David really knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. He's got a mighty house and people are ringing. He builds a bigger house and a bigger house. The shepherd of my people is now sitting on the throne in a huge house. What is he going to do from that throne? Verse 13, Samuel's warning to the people when they ask for a king. You do not want a king. Why? Because your king will take and take and take. He'll take your men, put them to war. He'll take your women, make them his own. Take your kids, put them in slave. Verse 13, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And there begins the kingly rule of David in Jerusalem, the shepherd over his people. So as we read the Bible, we're always faced with this. We need better. David was good, and he has a lot of good things to learn from, but he is not the shepherd that we need. What we need is a better shepherd. Here's how Jesus would describe himself. We'll end on this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hands are, is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. That man runs away because he has a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Thank God for David, the first king of Israel. But thank God he's not the final king. Jesus is, and he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and leads us out and brings us back, especially in the seasons where we wish God would move it along a little faster. This is the Christian faith. Jacob getting made fun of. This is what we've been invited into, to follow an invisible God whose promises take generation, and sometimes he breaks our hip. And he still calls us to follow him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, just use your spirit now to connect dots that need to be connected. For those of us that are in seasons of waiting, I just pray that we would not get what most of us want and what I want in most cases, which is answers and sort of a pulling back of the curtain to see how it's going to play out but rather give us a deeper, more real, experiential trust of you, the good shepherd, the king who now sits on the throne that David started. And you do not sit there passive. You do not sit there disconnected. You do not sit there apathetic. You sit there as the good shepherd with a staff in hand, ready to lead and guide us in and out. So God, help us as we live in this space where your words have spoken mighty things that your hand is not allowed to come to pass yet. We love you. We trust you, but we also confess we need to trust you more, and it's hard. So help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.